You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. 3CR. 3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past, present and emerging of the Kulin Nations. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning. Welcome to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR Community Radio. It's the 2nd of February already. I know. What the heck? <laughs> 2021. I'm old. Aquarius season. Aquarius season, yes. Megan the Stallion tweeted this morning. Aquarius season. Mm. What does that mean, George? Yeah, I was just about Tell to ask. Tell us about Aquarius. <laughs> well, without without going into too much detail and boring <clears throat> everyone who's listening right now, uh, in rel- to make it relevant to 3CR, it means that we can all get super political because Aquarians are big picture thinkers, so maybe this is the time to get Excellent. active. Yeah. Oh, all right. Yeah. You heard it here first, folks. <laughs> <laughs> February, the month of activism. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, you're here with Lauren, me. Genevieve and Georgie. Good morning. I don't know. I didn't do a weather check. I think it's going to oh, be like I've, 22 or so Yeah, today. it's going to be it's yeah. going to be bad. Not bad, sorry. <laughs> it's going to be a bad day. No. Uh, it's a little bit rainy, top of 18, low of 11. Ooh. Humidity is 90%. Oh. Yeah, it's going to be good. <laughs> right. Okay. Well, I wish I sort of hadn't asked, actually. <laughs> but there you go. You can all put some extra serum in your hair this morning because yeah. it's going to be humid. Mm-hmm. Um, what's on the show today? All right. Uh, Up in a few minutes after we do the news headlines, we're going to do a little bit of an Alton News segment uh, talking about the um, axing of the global gag rule by the new Biden administration. I'm going to go into a bit of the history about the global gag rule and I guess what health groups are calling on now Mm -hmm. uh, going forward. So I'm going to talk a bit about that. Cool. Awesome. Um, and the Renters and Housing Union, um, Reedy from Rahu, are gonna, they're going to join us this morning. Um, just to give a bit of an update, there's been a fair bit happening in terms of um, renting or the eviction moratorium and social housing and all of that sort of thing in Victoria. Um, the future is bleak, but uh, Rahu are going to join and talk us through it. Mm, sounds pretty relevant. Mm. Then after that, we're going to play a few snippets from a panel that Tuesday breakfast held last year. That was, George hosted. <laughs> that Lauren organised. Touche. Do you can play at this game? <laughs> um, it, was a pa- it was called Safety for Who and it was about the recent push to criminalise coercive control. And as you can imagine at 3CR, a lot of us would very strongly identify as prison abolitionists and we held this panel to give a voice to that position which is not being given much airtime in mainstream media, even by some outlets that we might be kind of Mm. a little bit fond of sometimes, um, which is quite disappointing. So we're going to play some snippets from that because it's a great sort of segue into an interview that we have Mm. with Sin. And we're going to talk about what's been going on since because the 
pro-criminalised coercive control campaign is very well resourced. Oh There's so much money behind it. Yeah. They're pumping out. I saw a magazine, an online magazine with a bunch of articles, like yeah. Jess Hill, all of those big names. Like, I think it's really... um. It's a bit scary and I'm interested to hear Sin's thoughts on how we can actually counter that if we don't have the yeah. same backing. Well, it's that, I mean, it's where the money is, right? Like liberal mm. feminism is that that idea of like the girl boss, there's mm-hmm. money there yeah. and that sells, that idea sells and it's so closely linked to a carceral feminist kind of punitive us and them type of way of thinking. Um, yeah. It's just, yeah, it's scary. Yeah. Oh, cool. I'm looking forward to hearing what Sin has to say. Yes, definitely. Um, We will be right back with some news headlines. G'day. My name is Margie Thorpe. You are listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 on your dial. Free Palestine Melbourne is holding an online forum exploring the implications of a number of Arab nations normalising relations with Israel while it continues to occupy Palestine and oppress the Palestinian people. The forum will explore the implications for justice for Palestinians, for geopolitics and peace in the region, and for the expanding gulf between autocratic rulers and their people. Speakers include Dr Khaled Hroub from Northwestern University in Qatar, Dr Ahmed Jamil Azam from Berzet University, and Palestinian and local author, playwright and activist Dr Samah Sabawi. Join us the 10th of February, Wednesday night at 8pm. Register at fpmelbourne.org forward slash events. That's fpmelbourne.org forward slash events. Free Palestine Melbourne is a 3CR supporter. In the news headlines today, nearly 2 million people across Perth and southern Western Australia are now under strict lockdown conditions after a quarantine hotel security guard tested positive for COVID-19. Authorities are now trying to track down and isolate all close contacts and ensure everyone who may have come into contact with the worker who travelled to a number of locations across the area while infectious is tested for COVID-19. Going across the globe, um, uh, Estonia recently elected their first female prime minister who has promised to implement change in both style and substance in the governance of the Baltic nation. Uh, She takes charge after two years in which a far-right party was in the ruling coalition. Uh, Her name is Kaya Kalas, a 43-year-old lawyer and head of Estonia's Reform Party. Uh, This is a quote by her as well. My government will be very pro-European, especially in supporting European values such as the rule of law. Uh, We will also have a very clear change in politics when it comes to issues like climate policy. It's really awesome to see, especially across Europe, which uh, has quite a few far-right authoritarian leaders uh, controlling a lot of Eastern Europe, especially at the moment. Um, Also, uh, the Myanmar coup, uh, Aung San Suu Kyi, uh, has called for public protest against a military coup in Myanmar uh, hours after she and other figures from the ruling party were detained by the army. The leader, who was seized in a morning raid, said the military was trying to reimpose dictatorship. Uh, military television announced on Monday morning, so this is last Monday morning, 
um, not yesterday but the week before, that the army had taken control of the country for one year with power handed to Commander-in-Chief General Min Ong uh, Yelang. It said that the army had declared a state of emergency and had de- detained senior government leaders in response to fraud during last year's general election. Phone and mobile internet services in Yangon were dawn were down on Monday morning and military trucks, one carrying barbed wire barriers, were parked outside City Hall. State-run MRTV television said it had been unable to broadcast. Banks were also closed across the nation. Uh, This is obviously, over the past week, there has been mounting concern that the military, uh, which ran Myanmar, previously known as Burma, for some 50 years until 2011, was preparing to retake power, alleged widespread irregularities in November's election, uh, which Aung San Suu Kyi's party won in a landslide victory. Um, This obviously comes at the dawn of uh, Aung San Suu Kyi uh, was in detention for 15 years, I think, before she was elected. Um, Decades-long struggle. I think she was elected for a Nobel Peace Prize that was uh, revoked, actually, uh, with allegations of genocide. But um, I guess really scary stuff knowing that the military has such power. I think it's in actually one of their policies that um, the military is still able to um, legally take power whenever it it wants to. Um, So, yeah, that's all for the news headlines for today. Uh, We're going to go to some old news. Some folks know about it, some don't. But sooner or later, baby, here's a ditty. Say you're gonna have to get right down to the real nitty-gritty. Let's get right down to the real nitty-gritty. Why? Do you want to keep listening to it? <laughs> George loves nitty-gritty. <laughs> I missed it. It's a great tune. Um, so welcome to Alternative News. <clears throat> All right, so... Take it away. Yeah, today we're talking about the recent axing of the global gag rule done by the new Biden administration. Um, the president's move to end uh, abortion ban on overseas funding um, is hailed um, by a lot of health groups and uh, countries across the globe. Um, but now aid groups want an apology for harmful Trump policies. Um, just a little bit of background, I think, first. Uh, the global gag rule prohibits foreign... So it was re- first instated 1984 by the Reagan administration um, and it prohibits foreign non-governmental organisations who receive US global health assistance from providing legal abortion services or referrals while also barring advocacy for abortion law reform, um, even if it's done with the NGO's own non-US funds, Uh, The policy allows access to abortion only in cases of rape, incest, or when a woman's life is at risk. Um, So uh, in 2017, obviously when the Trump administration uh, was in office, um, uh, Trump issued a presidential uh, memorandum regarding the Mexico City policy. This order reinstates and dramatically expands the Mexico City policy, which is... um, the global gag rule, adopted under previous Republican administrations since 1984. And it's interesting, um, uh, after it was first reinstated in 1984, every single Democratic leader has revoked 
the policy and every single Republican leader has reinstated the policy. So it's like this to and fro, like, yeah. Um, But the main difference was when Trump reinstated it, there was huge slashes to funding and it covered the like the globe global aid not just um national aid Mm. so the plan named protecting life in global health assistance was approved to implement uh the expansion this meant u.s law had banned using u.s foreign aid for abortion related activities um and the mexico city policy which is separate rule that goes further and requires a foreign non-governmental organization receiving u.s global health assistance to certify certify that they do not use their own their own non-US funds, uh, which is to provide abortion services, counsel patients about the option of abortion or refer them for abortion or advocate for the liberalisation of abortion laws. Mm. Um, yeah, and let's see, I've got some stats here. <laughs> Um, So Trump's gag rule was even more damaging. The policy usually applies to family planning organisations, but the Trump administration expanded the policy to include all global health programs. Mm. This extends restrictions. uh, It's estimated at $8.8 billion in US global health assistance, including funding support for family planning and reproductive health, maternal and child health, nutrition and HIV and AIDS. Mm. Um, And... I know Georgie has a few things to say about the family planning aspect of that and how important, yeah, funding yeah. is to that. Um, thanks for those details. It is, it's quite a complex history, isn't it? I think it's interesting to think about that history in terms of the discourse around family planning and how the US, political leaders in the US, you know, since Reagan times have been very strategic in how they have kind of pitched this to the mm. world and used international organisations to control people's bodies mm-hmm. as, a, as a foreign policy approach. Mm-hmm. That's the crazy thing. Like, they, if you receive any sort of aid from the, the, from the US government related to health issues, you cannot use that to have anything to do with abortion or family yeah. planning. It's just crazy. Yeah, it's so conditional. Yeah. Yeah, and when the reality is, I guess, that if you actually cared about people's livelihoods you would actually address inequalities between states Mm. that's probably the single biggest way to ensure that people do have access to reproductive rights Mm -hmm. and reproductive justice that that would go a lot further than going okay we're going to give you this money or we're going to give you this support but you have to follow these rules and rules that actually completely contradict people accessing reproductive rights yeah. Yeah, it's um I guess it's pretty classic for the US, but it is yeah. extreme. It's another one of those very manipulative definitely it's kind of approaches. really flexing the power that they have over predominantly developing countries mm-hmm. and predominantly countries that have um been decolonized in the last 100 years. Um yeah. Yeah, I'm just while while I was reading about this issue as well, there was um some stats for example, in Zimbabwe, um, this is coming from uh, the leader of a women's health team, um, a baby Shibru. 
um, the organization's called MSI, Repro- Reproductive Choices, um, and she said that the operations were cut by 60% over the last four years, so reduced um, outreach from 700,000 women to about 300,000 women, and like those stats are kind of mirrored in a lot of other mm. countries, including South America, um, a lot of African countries, Southeast Asia, all those kind of places that receive um, health funding uh, from international sources. Mm. Yeah, that's huge. Yeah. So that's been revoked. Well, not permanently revoked, but mm-hmm. it's been um, – Biden has axed that policy um, during his administration. But what global um, health groups are asking for now is a permanent uh, – revoking of that policy so that means that republican parties will not be able to reinstate it ever again and so what's actually happening um this thursday the global health empowerment and rights act to permanently repeal the global gag rule will be introduced for the third time in congress so it's never passed but it'll be introduced for the third time the bill uh, which is co-sponsored by the new vice president kamala harris has received cross-party support so hopes are high it will pass But, I mean, we'll see. Uh, Mm. Activists are also calling for the Biden administration to disavow um, the Geneva Consensus Declaration, which was an anti-abortion policy Trump also promoted last year. And this this declaration is crazy. I was reading about it and, like, the groups signed – a lot of the countries that signed the declaration are predominantly authoritarian countries uh, like Brazil, Egypt, Hungary – um, Belarus, uh, a lot of countries that have been considered to be among the worst countries to be um, a woman or gender nonconforming. Mm. Um, so just to recap, Biden has only res- um, uh, sorry, revoked the global gag rule, which is just the first step. Mm. Congress must now permanently repeal the global gag rule so that this destructive policy can't be reinstated by the next president. Mm. Fingers crossed. Please keep us updated on... Yeah, definitely. I wanted to plug just one movement that I came Mm. across um, called She Decides, which actually came out in um, during the Trump administration in protest for Trump's reinstating of the global gag rule. Um, And it's a... It aims to pressure policymakers around the world to commit to upholding reproductive and sexual health rights. So She Decides is... Um, international non-governmental um, organization aimed at yeah championing um, reproductive and sexual health rights. They have a um, manifesto that you can sign, you can donate, and you can also access heaps of information about what's going on um, in other countries and what you can do um, mm. in, on an international uh, platform for um, reproductive and sexual health rights. Mm. It's something that we maybe not take for granted here because it has been hard fought and it still mm. continues to be hard fought, but it's certainly, we're not um, reliant on the US for that funding and it's exactly mm, it's yeah. a big difference. Yeah, for sure. Mm. It's now or never for climate action. So join the National Sustainable Living Festival this February for a program showcasing cutting-edge solutions to the ecological and social challenges of our times. Be part of the change and join the sustainability movement with a month of workshops, talks, demonstrations, artworks, exhibitions, films and live performances. 
It's time to reset to climate safe. For the full program, go to slf.org.au. The National Sustainable Living Festival is a 3CR supporter. Six years I've been in desert. Beyond the Bars is 3CR's annual prison project, giving voice to our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander inmates right across Victoria. It's good to be here because uh, Aboriginal radio and um, you don't really get to do this much. Brings us all together. Time, you'll get your time to take that first step out that front door to freedom beyond these walls. Make sure and I just want to say thank you yours. to all What's of you for What's giving us the opportunity to speak on air. The reason, the bigger the calling. Make your commitment and watch things unfold. And you can listen to audio from this year's broadcasts and previous years as well. Online at any time, just go to 3cr.org.au forward slash beyond the bars. But also while I'm here, I'd like to say thank you for all for coming, um, helping, giving us a chance to do this. It's really good, you know. It's been going for a while now. Hopefully, it goes, it keeps going. You know, like it's it's good that we can do this and um, get our voice out there as prisoners. We can't blame everything on the external, so let's stop looking for it in the hands of the persecutor, because real power comes from here and it comes from family. If you would like us to post you a free CD, contact the station on 03 9419 You're back on 3CR Community Radio on Tuesday Breakfast. Um, it is 7.21 in the morning and now we are very lucky to be joined uh on the line by Rini from Rahu, which is the Renters and Housing Union here in Nam, Victoria. Rini, good morning. Good morning, folks. Thanks heaps for having me. No, thank you for joining us. It's nice and early. I always appreciate people getting up <laughs> and having had their first coffee by now. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I'd go love 3CR for it. <laughs> um, so maybe for listeners who aren't familiar with Rahu, because um, you guys are hot and new and fresh on the scene. Um, could you tell us a bit about the union and the work that you do? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so basically, we are a union that formed uh, out of the COVID-19 crisis, and we're a member-run union of renters and people in precarious housing. Um, we collectively organise to fight for the right to safe and secure housing, and this comes in many ways, like through our own self-advocacy um, we, are, we only do our own advocacy, if that makes sense, um, through educating each other about our rights in tenancies of all kinds and also with frontline eviction defence. Um, we've, in the last, I think we formed in May and in the last period since then, we've helped each other navigate the confusing tenancy system, um, both in private and public housing, and we've negotiated up to um, $25,000 of debt and increasing to be waived in the last six months. Um, So it's been a pretty amazing ride and we're only growing. So if this, you know, it sounds interesting to folks, um, we're open to all members of um, any tenancy type. Yeah, awesome. Um, 
so obviously renting is, you know, it's always an issue, but I think during COVID it really came to the forefront of many people's um, understanding that actually this is an awful predatory system. Um, Mm. And so now there's this report that's just come out from the Productivity Commission that found that um, more than half of all low-income renters experience rental stress, and it's just shocking. Um, I want to talk a bit about that report, but can we maybe start with what is rental stress? Sure. Um, So rental stress is technically defined as paying more than 30% of your income in rent. And while the figures are shocking, um, it's really no surprise. I mean, we've all been paying, in terms of people in low income particularly, we've all become used to paying more than 30% of our income in rent um, for a very long time before COVID. And and absolutely, COVID-19 exacerbated that extensively, um, you know, with people on government support payments, um, even out of that figure of 55% um, in rental stress, those on government support are still 30% in rental stress after the rent assistance allowance. Mm. I guess it's really important also to note that it disproportionately affects uh, First Nations people, uh, people on DSP, job seeker recipients, but even more as well, um, international students on temporary visas um, who hadn't got access to government support payments at all last year, um, which is, yeah, really worrying in terms of um, not even having the the baseline income support that could help with rental stress. Um, So I guess the problem is twofold for us, the way we see it is that our welfare system hasn't updated to meet the cost of living, you know, almost 30 years, with the exception of the COVID-19 supplement last year. And the rental market has risen, risen over 750% in the last decade, which is just shocking. Um, it's a completely unregulated thing that basically turns our right to a home into into a profit, which is at the core of the issue. Yeah. Um. Oh, that's just so. Those figures have really stunned me. I feel like a bit of a mullet sitting here. Um, Sorry, I just can't, yeah. <laughs> so it's pretty shocking, yeah. Yeah, and so in that context, I mean, extraordinary times. But the Victorian government has then sort of come out late last year and this, you know, unprecedented amount of spending on public housing, blah blah blah. What is Rahu's take on this? And in that context, is this enough? It's a complicated um, thing to pass that we spent a fair bit of time on uh, when the announcement came out. So, I mean, out of the $5.3 billion, it looks great. Mm. And um, it's great that the further money is going into developing housing. But the issue is that to truly address the 10-year waiting list of public housing, uh, the government needs to explicitly commit to public housing rather than some social or community housing models, which are private um, so essentially that announcement was a great way to announce um, essentially public land going into private hands mm. and the messaging around social and community housing is sort of purposefully unclear. Um, we've taken a firm line in Rahu that we want to see public housing um, funded and renewed and you know made more of to meet um, OECD average. So 
To increase the public housing stock, the government would have to go from 1.9% as it stands to 5% in the next five years, which means far more work done than what they've announced. Um, and I think it, it really does speak to the fact that, you know, this government and previous governments in the last decade have demolished public housing and it's caught up with them. Mm. Uh, the pandemic has shown those in power, the necessity of housing on a healthcare response level, even if it doesn't meet their sort of ethical level of um, providing housing for people as a human right. Mm. So, okay, so there's that huge leap in um, public housing, which obviously needs to happen. It's not even a, you know, this would be nice. This is a necessity. Um, what are some other changes that Rahu is keen to see or, or do you have any campaigns on the go or things that you're pushing for? For sure. I think, um, as, as, you, as you mentioned in your tweet last night, um, <laughs> there's just 20 billion thousand issues with tenancy and I'm it's sure all of us... List. It's ridiculous. Yeah, all of us could think of like a billion things that mm. they've had to deal with in, in whatever kind of tenancy um, that we've had. And I guess it's tricky that way for us to narrow down into exactly what our focus is because the priorities are so high and so urgent. But in terms of what we'd like to see in the next three months, we want to see protections for renters that address the longest standing effects of COVID. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's the economic effects. And that means for us cancelling rent debt. That's a massive priority for us. And banning evictions for renters who are in hardship. Um, We'd also like to see the big government deliver the promise of head tenancy leases for people experiencing homelessness because we all saw last year that they promised that and, you know, it slipped under the rug very conveniently um, that they were exiting people from hotels well before they promised to. Um, And we'd also like to see the government actually regulate the real estate industry and apply penalties for breaching renters' rights and that would apply to landlords as well because... So often um, the system and the legislation has been set up, yet the penalties for breaching that legislation aren't actually applied. Mm. Um, We'd also like to see the federal government obviously grow some humanity um, and keep the rate of job seeker and job keeper, like just to to keep back to the level of um, living standards and for people to keep their head above water. I think that's something we firmly stand on, and, you know, we've got seven weeks until the eviction moratorium is lifted. And, and while we'd love to see the governments do these things, we're not going to wait for that. Um, as a union, we're ready to hold landlords and agents to account and we'll continue to support renters in hardship to make sure their debt's waived. Mm. It's just uh, listening to you and, and just thinking about the sheer amount of people in this country who are renters or who live in public housing and how we just... It's, it's almost as if we take for granted that we will be subjugated by landlords. Like we just, it's just accepted that we will not hold them to account and we will not push back and we will not, um, you know, we will accept that we will probably pay more than 30% of our, our salary into, yeah. into rent and no, no more. Absolutely. That's why we're around <laughs> and we're yes. absolutely sick of the fact that that's just becoming completely, um, completely accepted norm and Mm. it's putting thousands of people in severe stress and you know we're organizing in neighborhoods across melbourne um and regionally as well online and 
we're organising very intensely to make sure that we can provide eviction defence and support for each other mm. um, because, yeah, it's, it's, there's no way that this system can last. Mm. And so if you've similarly galvanised all of our listeners, as you have me, um, where can <laughs> they go to join the union to help out with your work? Where are we directing them? Um, you can head to our website, rahu.org.au, R-A-H for housing, U.org.au, and you can join up there. Um, our delegates make calls to members um, every week, so you can actually speak to a real person when you join. Um, our Facebook is Renters and Housing Union, and our Twitter handle is RAUnion. Um, so, yeah, come check us out and, and get in touch. Awesome. And I can absolutely say that they are very responsive on the Twitter DMs if you ever want to slide in there and get some more information. <laughs> Thanks, Thanks so much, Lee, for joining Oh, us. one last thing. Yes. Sorry. No, if you no. do have an issue with tenancy, the most important um, contact to give is organise at rahu.org.au and our casework team can help you out by email. Beautiful. Thanks so much for your time, Rini, and good luck with the next few months. Thanks, Lauren. Cheers for having us on. Thanks. Now we are going to a song, I believe. Yeah, we're going to play a song by uh, Melbourne-based producer and vocalist uh, Komeng. I discovered Komeng probably like six months ago. Um, she put out a song, Dewey, um, which is awesome. If you haven't listened to that, I'd highly recommend. But I'm going to play her new song. came out a couple weeks ago um, called Flex. I hope you enjoy
Strip 
You're listening to Tuesday Breakfast. The time is 7.40 a.m. Uh, you just heard a couple of songs. Uh, one of them was by Melbourne-based producer and vocalist Komeng. Uh, the song was Me called Flex. Grammarly. The digital writing assist. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Having some technical difficulties. Um, and then the second song you heard from was uh, London-based songwriter and singer Green Tea Peng. Um, the song was called Who Man. And now, Very nice. yeah, we're going to go to snippet from the panel, George. Yeah, so we held a panel called Safety for Who, which was about the recent push to criminalise coercive control. And we heard from some prison abolitionist, abolitionist perspectives on this issue. For listeners who are unfamiliar with this term, because it has kind of been a little bit new on the scene, Coercive control is described by the conversation uh, as uh, it's a term used to capture the ongoing nature of domestic violence where the abuse is not always physical but pervades a victim's daily life. It refers to a wide variety of abusive behaviours, including social, financial, psychological and technology-facilitated abuse. It can include isolating a partner from their friends and family, restricting their movements, using tracking devices on their phone and controlling their appearance and access to money. It has a devastating impact on victims' independence, well-being and safety. It is the most common risk factor leading up to an intimate partner homicide. So it's obviously incredibly harmful and there are a lot of very diverse opinions about how it should be addressed. But we're going to hear from a few of those perspectives now. In this first snippet, we're going to hear from Tabitha Lane, who is a Gundijamara woman. She was formerly incarcerated. She is an abolitionist abolitionist and a family violence survivor and also from Monique Hamid who is a trainer and volunteer coordinator at WIRE so they start off Tabitha starts by talking about Miss Do so a content warning this will be about indigenous deaths in custody and ongoing violence due to colonization. The 2nd of August in 2014 police responded to a call out at Miss Do's house partner had violated an apprehensive violence order. When the cops arrived, they arrested both of them because they realised Miss Do had an outstanding warrant. So Miss Do had done what she'd been told by family violence services to call the cops. And what ended up happening, she was detained and killed in custody. So when people ask me, do we think that it could work differently? It has to bloody work differently. It has to, because white carceral feminists can sit around all they like and say, call the cops. So for my mob, calling the cops means death. So, yeah, I've gone rogue off my nose. But that's the reality is we have to do differently. We have to do better. And these conversations that we have are all really polite and wonderful. And how mob are dying? Like, we don't actually have the luxury of time to sit around and, you know, kind of, news about whether we can do it differently. We actually have to. Our lives depend on you all doing it differently. Whether it's, you know, family violence sector, women's health sector, um, so that would include, I guess, support workers, health professionals, social workers. And it's not just this particular sector, but looking at this sector, there is this history. It's dominated by white women mainly, Um, and there's this real history of it being this helping profession and good intentions being the most important part of it. And I think it's still a workforce that's really dominated by often young white women 
um, who genuinely want to do good but aren't necessarily asked to have that systemic analysis of their relationship to power. And so it becomes really hard to talk about the harmful effects of the systems we might be upholding through our work and the way that the family violence sector is, um, you know, helping to enact that state violence. You know, always the, even now you hear gender as being the main focus. We hear about gender inequality as the main driver. Um, and it's so hard to talk about other forms of violence because it's seen as going off track, you know, if we want to talk about racial violence um, or other types of violence. There's an article that I always come back to by a woman called Connie Burke who talks about in the anti-violence movement, our visions and missions and goals are often stated in terms of what we want to eradicate but rarely articulated as what we want to build. And I think I really see that in this sector. It's all about we want to end this particular violence, but not as much discussion around, well, what do we want to build in its place? Um, and how do we actually build those supportive and loving and equitable relationships that aren't based on systems of oppression? I think if we did ask those questions more in this sector, it, we'd be a lot quicker to that discussion around why criminalisation, incarceration, building more prisons, creating more laws is not the answer or the best response. I think that would be easier to talk about. And we could talk more about things like capitalism and colonisation as being the larger context that this violence is occurring on. It's kind of amazing how we can just reach in and take out this very particular form of violence and look at, look at it completely out of context and not think about how, you know, the violence that this, uh, the colonisation of this land was built on, you know, has not informed all the violence that's come after it. There's such a strong connection there, but it's seen as going off track or, you know, not what we need to focus on right now. Just to talk a little bit about temporary visas specifically, a lot's been written on the additional barriers that women face when they're on a temporary visa. Um, and a lot of family violence workers have spoken quite publicly about feeling quite stuck when supporting women on temporary visas and being unsure about what they can actually offer. Um, and they're often referred to as a marginalised group, like many of the groups that we're talking about and that we're members of. But never we discuss, you know, who's actually marginalising them. They weren't inherently marginal. It's really, again, not looking at the wider system that everything is existing in. Yeah, I think so many of the, the barriers that are being faced are around being cut off from things like housing, Centrelink, all the types of financial support and aid that are really needed and that are deserved no matter what your visa status. And it's so clear to me that criminalising coercive control isn't going to just add to the ways that these people are criminalised and can be controlled and manipulated rather than providing them with what's actually needed, which is, you know, safe and stable housing, the right to financial support, um, medical care, all of these things regardless of your visa status. The criminal justice system continues to take our lives because in this country we only have the death penalty if you're black. In this country there's a two-tiered justice system and my mob rests uncomfortably on the bottom rung. In this country the people who have done the most harm to my people are not and will never likely be in prison. And prisons and policing are a central part of the settler colonial war machine. The state wields punishment practices as social control weapons. And that's why I'm an abolitionist, right? It's why we're trying to organise within this current system and it makes it so difficult because every time a black person speaks up and dissents or speaks back against the system, it puts a direct threat to our life. But quite frankly, how we handle crime or what we consider is a crime is one of the most important civil rights challenges of our time, in my view. Because we're at a crucible moment right now. 
But much of the debate is built on misconceptions um, that we push simple reforms. Activists are pushing simple reforms that rely on the logics of the carceral state, underpinned by carceral feminists who trot out the same answer to every ill, lock them up. And this keeps us on the treadmill of reform. It stops us from engaging in dialogues of curiosity and possibility, and it sends us in inadequate and even counterproductive directions. And I think that this happens for two reasons. I think it's because of racial capitalism and this punishment philosophy that we've all internalised and taken on board. Um, we have this pull to vengeance, retribution and revenge. We're convinced that we will only feel better if we do to someone who has done harm the same that they've done to us. And the system implements punishments against others to, to sustain, prop up and ensure white capital accumulation and white privilege. So in this country, we see punishments serving as necessary functions to facilitate capital accumulation for white elites and to protect the white privilege of white people. So for people like me, people with lived experience, people with a strong revolutionary conscience, are locked out of these conversations or are relegated to the most extreme parts of the margins. And, I mean, I'm kind of okay with being in the margins mostly because that's where the cool people dwell, right? But let's not forget that criminal law reflects and serves elite interests. They hold the power. They become the agents of social control. And so racial capitalism really impacts our ability to organise and to be active in these spaces because it victimises a significant segment of society based on the need to control and perpetrate harm on a portion of the population for gain. So for people like me, it's not just the reliance on the criminal justice system that inhibits my activism or my ability to organise in these spaces. It's racial capitalism and colonisation so that every time I raise my lived experience black voice, I put my liberty and life at risk. You're listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR. We're hearing some snippets from a panel we held last year. It was called Safety for Who, and it was about it was on uh, prison abolitionist perspectives on coercive control and why we don't think it should be criminalised. So you heard in that segment from Tabitha Lane and Monique Hamid, and we're going to jump back jump back in now, hearing from George Mantle, who is an Indigenous abolitionist and disability rights advocate, and there's another, uh, another few comments there from Tabitha Lane as well. And just a bit of context, so they jump into this question around nihilism and unpacking why an abolitionist perspective is not nihilistic. And they talk about solutions and alternatives to carceral feminism and criminalising coercive control. My politics and the reason I'm an abolitionist is because I'm optimistic. Sometimes I think that perhaps or other people think that I'm perhaps naively so and I think that critique often comes from this idea that I don't know what harm is and I do I know what harm is I've lived harm and I've seen it in my communities but I think abolition is optimistic and I I can't help but but smile about the ideas and the possibilities of what abolition offers 
I think I, I might just read it out because it will say it better than probably I can now, but um, I had the privilege of writing an article with um, my sister Marley and in response to the idea that we are defeatist and nihilistic about the ability of the justice system to protect women, we would say that as opposition, as opponents to the criminalisation of coercive control, this does not stem from pessimism. Instead, our resistance to it has developed from a thorough understanding of the inherent oppressive nature of policing and the criminal justice system, in addition to the limits of the system in responding to deeper social issues. Abolitionist feminism demands of us as women and people deeply embedded in our communities an optimism in our own ability to respond to violence without reproducing harm. Modern policing and incarceration have become so naturalised that there is an immense difficulty in imagining and conceptualising how violence could be addressed outside these systems. Abolition's optimism and creativity is situated within our ability to imagine alternatives outside the disempowering hegemonic systems that exist. So, yeah, I'm not a nihilist about the criminal justice system. Uh, I'm a realist. I understand what it is. But everything that I do is embedded in the idea that we, as part of the communities that we exist in, can do things better. We can use nihilism to diagnose the problem with the system. But I don't think nihilism can take us beyond that initial diagnosis. I think nihilism fails at the crucial task of, I guess, establishing a theory of the relationship between the ideology and the material conditions from which the harm is produced. If I want to put that simply, nihilism might accurately point out the problem, but it's ill-equipped to explain what the source of the problem is, nor does it adequately encompass the spirit of abolition. Denialism actually restricts our movement. And by that I mean nihilism settles by saying if the problem is then the solution, if if that is the problem, then the solution must be the opposite. Therefore, our task becomes onerously negating that endlessly. And that solutions can never be adequate because it responds to an ideological issue at the level of ideology. And so, in my view, fighting ideology with counter ideology rather than eliminating and reshaping the material conditions from which the first ideology emerges keeps us just chasing our tails. And, you know, for me, abolition is so much more than just a movement that seeks to dismantle, destroy and tear down the prison industrial system. As both Georgia and Monique said, abolition is a way of living and breathing. It's life-giving and it's about love and it's about loving people beyond who we want them to be. And whenever I say that, people think I'm being quaint or I'm being... I don't know, like I'm fetishising justice as some sort of imagined utopia that's well out of reach, but I I really just want us to challenge the ubiquitous belief that there are throwaway people, that there are disposable people. And I, I think that this criticism around this idea that we just want to love people a little bit more, it's really strange to me that people find that um, so threatening. But abolition is absolutely a building project, as Monique said. It's focused on creating a world focused on abundance and healing, not scarcity and harm. It's about centering community, as Georgia said, and it's about a way of living and being and doing that shapes life rather than takes life. 
So I think I can understand where people might conflate nihilism with abolition, but they're wrong. <laughs> I'll say that unequivocally. But I can see, you know, their, their point, and that's why I wanted to address where I think that the limits of nihilism are in the abolition movement. And that, yes, they, they might be there to diagnose a problem, but abolition is what's going to take us through and see us forward and, and enable us to live and breathe. I think in terms of what a system that heals could look like, I think that we do actually need to understand the diversity of harm and the diversity of the ways that people can respond to harm. And the fact is that what could heal me might not heal someone else that had a similar harm caused against them. And so what I'm saying there is not that we have this sort of neoliberal idea of an individualised response, but rather that we actually do let people who have been harmed speak to their own harm and speak to what's happened to them and what they feel that they need from their community to actually heal. Um, And I think that will look really differently for a lot of people. But I think something that I generally think is really important and something that I found quite healing when harm has been caused against me or when I've caused harm is an acknowledgement that that harm has been caused, whether it was intended to or not that it was caused. Um, And I think that we need to look and realise that the criminal justice system, prisons, um, never ask that of people. Um, Sure, people can plead guilty. A lot of people plead guilty for reasons other than guilt or remorse or acknowledgement of harm. So trying to, you know, see systems that actually do acknowledge harm. And, and again, this is not about just the people who have caused sexual violence or physical harm or coercive control. It's a lot bigger than that. Um, It's about acknowledging that actually we do all cause harm to each other and that is part of what it means to be in a community. Um, And so it's not about saying that these specific people have caused more harm or worse harm than someone else but rather collectively coming to the acknowledgement that this is something that we do, but it's not something that we have to reproduce. You're listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR. We were just hearing some snippets from our Safety for Who panel on prison abolitionist perspectives on coercive control. I really liked how Georgia Mantle ended the discussion there, thinking about how harm is something that we all do and that if we really want to be an abolitionist, it starts with ourselves. And I think that was a great kind of, yeah, coming together of all of those ideas, but incredibly powerful um, thoughts and views presented in that panel. And we will share a link if you would like to listen to more of that because it did go for a solid hour and a half. So there's a lot of great stuff there. And stay with us because we will be talking to Sin because there's been a lot of things going on the last few months and we really want to keep the momentum going on this issue. Definitely. And we're just going to jump to a song. Uh, I wanted to do a bit of a tribute to um, trans musician Sophie, who very tragically passed away in the last week. Uh, Sophie is a Grammy-nominated musician from Scotland. Um, They've worked with the likes of Madonna and Charlie XCX. Uh, This is probably one of their most popular songs. It's called Immaterial.
Community Union Defence League. And we're a community organisation stepping up to support our communities and serve the people in building community power. We currently run two street kitchens in Dandenong and the CBD, where we provide food, clothes and essential items to the homeless. We're open to everyone and entirely community run, so if you're interested in donating, volunteering or just coming down for a chat, please check out our website at cudl.org.au or find us on social media. A 3CR supporter. You're listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR. We are joined on the line by Sin Webb. They are studying social work and community and criminal justice at university. Thank you so much for joining us this morning, Sin. Thanks for having me. So you're here with us to talk about coercive control and I thought maybe we'd start by just hearing your sort of personal relationship to this? Why why is this an issue that's close to your heart and how do you kind of, um, in terms of identifying as, as an abolitionist, what does that mean to you? Okay, so I have been free from my abuser for seven years now. Um, we were married and had children together, but I also brought a child into that relationship that wasn't his. And... Um, if I can explain how he won me over was that he was an incredibly charming man. Um, I saw no warning signs. I was young, but I saw no warning signs that would have told me that he was going to change and become a monster. And um, it wasn't until we got married and bought a house that his behaviour really changed and he became controlling over finances. He became controlling over what friends I would see. He became controlling over a lot of things. He was jealous of our children and the love I showed for our children. He also was quite... Um, for the duration of our relationship, there was a lot of sexual abuse and um, I lived for a long time believing there was actually something wrong with me because of the language that he would use surrounding those incidents. Um, he would tell me that I was broken, there was something wrong with me, that he was perfectly normal in what his wants and desires were. Um, I didn't realise for a long time that what I was experiencing was marital rape because he had convinced me through 
the use of words and language and actions that he wasn't the problem, I was the problem. So there was a lot of gaslighting um, when I did make realisations about what was happening and I tried to have dialogue with him about it. My experiences were always altered. Um, so my reality was always altered. He didn't become physically violent until we had separated for quite some time and he made his way back into my life by focusing on what kind of dad he wanted to be to our children. Um, I look back now and I see the warning signs that he didn't actually ever want the kids. It was me that he wanted and the kids were a tool for him. And so the last seven years he's had no contact with them because he's had no contact with me. And... Well, other things that we realised throughout the time that I was with him was that my eldest child was being sexually abused by him, that he kept me so distracted through gaslighting and methods of coercive control that I couldn't even see what was happening for my children in the situation. And I think that's a pretty common thing for people who are victims of this kind of abuse. Their reality is so shifted by their abuser that they can't actually see the picture clearly of what's happening in their own families, if that makes sense. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, everything that you're describing, you know, all of this harm is so so incredibly textbook really you know the the, char- the charisma at the start and and how it kind of unfolds and how no one can ever anticipate that that is going to happen um and then how it then gets used against the children as well can you tell us a little bit about how this has then shaped your your sort of perspectives on criminalization and, and why you now identify as an abolitionist Okay, so initially um, I wanted him to suffer. I wanted him to hurt the way that he had hurt my child. He had hurt me, but the fact that he had hurt my child was and other and my other his, his children. Um, I guess a natural response to that is revenge to want to get some kind of revenge against them, whether it be through the legal system or in other ways. And I reached a point where I realised revenge was not healthy for me and it certainly wasn't healthy for the two children that I'd brought into this world with him. Um, They were very confused. They were dealing with abandonment over their father just walking out and never, never contacting them again. Um but they were also acutely aware of what he had done to their sister. And it was as a family sitting down and discussing, okay, what does moving forward look like for us? Does it look like dealing with the legal system and what that will mean for their sister, what that will mean for me, what that will mean for them? Um because it's, it's understanding that the legal system itself is not a justice system. It is a system of revenge. It is a system of punishment and not of rehabilitation, not of restorative practice. 
it's not about preventing these things from happening. It's all about putting a Band-Aid on these things after they've already happened. And so the kids and I talked about the impact of him being incarcerated would have on them. And I, at that stage, realised just how harmful incarceration is to the children in these relationships. Um, Sure, it gets that perpetrator out of the picture, but it doesn't break those biological bonds that those children have with them and prison is no place for children to be visiting. It's unfortunate that there are so many parents in prison and the prison system doesn't have an understanding of the trauma that that inflicts on those children when they go and visit their parents that are locked up. Um, Mm. And that trauma extends to the children after the parents are released. Like there's a lot of, there's a lot that goes on in the minds of children in these circumstances. And I think we need to unpack that a little bit more before we talk about how to address coercive control in a productive and healthy way. Yeah, absolutely. It must have taken a lot of strength and a lot of understanding to to come to that conclusion and be in a space where you can, you know, still acknowledge all of those things that he did whilst also having that position that, incarceration is not the answer and you just touched on there a little bit about that how how coercive control sort of extends beyond the relationship and then is then perpetuated by the state and by police and by prisons and how they feed into each other and you've spoken a lot about this on twitter and I'd, I'd sort of like to hear your thoughts in unpacking this a little bit more how this how this dynamic works yeah look one of my big concerns is that it's all very well and good to introduce these laws around coercive control, but what do we do about the fact that police use coercive control? Uh, we've seen it in the case of Kevin Henry, where it's alleged that the police used force to um, extract a false confession out of him, and we're talking 30 years down the track, Kevin has maintained his innocence for but still has this murder conviction hanging over his head, a murder that he didn't commit. Now, that's not justice for Kevin, and it's certainly not justice for Linda, the murder victim. Um, Police are using coercive control tactics all the time against black bodies and poor bodies and disabled bodies and... Are we going to extend these laws to include the coercive control that the legal system uses? How do we use a, how do we use a system to enforce these laws when they are perpetrating the very crime that they are criminalising people for? Yeah, absolutely. I think that pretty accurately highlights the contradiction there, and I think that's a that's a way of thinking about it that a lot of people haven't considered or at least people that maybe haven't come across 
prison abolition and alternatives to punitive approaches to criminalising, to, to coercive control. Uh, but speaking of that particular side, the carceral feminist side, we've been seeing since our Safety for Who panel this campaign being propped up by, you know, there's a lot of money behind it. There's a lot of articles being pumped out by mainstream media outlets. It's it's gaining traction. It's very, very popular. What are your thoughts on this, on, on who is behind it and how also how certain survivors' stories are used in the process as well to support criminalising coercive control? Okay, so one thing I've really noticed is that the voices of, Black survivors of coercive control are really being drowned out by the voices of the white women leading the push for these new laws. Um, it's almost inconvenient that we as black people see the legal system as so different to the white culture in this country. Um We see, we've seen uh, black women who've been arrested after they've been beaten by their partners because of their emotional responses to the trauma that's been inflicted on them. Um, you don't see that all that often when it comes to the white victims of this kind of abuse. Um, I know for myself, I the police were not in, involved in my circumstance too much, thank goodness. Um, but the times that they were, they actually made things worse for me. So um, my ex used to use um, suicide as a tool of coercive control and would threaten to harm himself in front of the kids and things like that. And... This one day he had taken a whole packet of painkillers and downed it with a bottle of wine, walked out of the house and sent me a message and said, when they find me, tell the kids I love them. And so my, I knew how devastating it would be for my children if their father passed away. He wasn't a great dad, but, I, but he was their dad. And so I automatically rang triple O and said, I need an ambulance my husband has taken painkillers and a bottle of wine and has sent me this message and I'm worried that he's going to do something to harm himself. And of course, when you make a phone call like that, the police show up as well with the ambulance. And the police were so antagonistic. Um, my ex was sending me vile, abusive, gross messages. And the male police officer just kept saying to me, just keep replying to him what are you getting so worked up about these messages for? And I remember throwing my phone at him and I said, you reply to him. And I was... They threatened to arrest me because of my emotional state at the time. And I think it's really important um, that it's acknowledged that police respond to different racial groups differently and that when we're talking about implementing laws around domestic violence, they will implement them differently when it comes to a white family versus a black family. And we can't pretend that it's going to be any different to that. 
the way that laws are already implemented means that they impact on black people more than they impact on white people. They impact on the poor more than they impact on the rich. Um, and when we're dealing with a system like that, I, we can't trust it to then implement new laws which are going to criminalise people further and expect that they're going to be fair and just. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, that is just ridiculous, the fact that you were potentially going to be arrested for being emotional. I mean, that's so far from keeping people safe and supporting people when they're experiencing this kind of harm. I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on how we can resist punitive approaches to criminalising coercive control. What other, what other ideas are there within the abolition movement around community accountability or other forms of accountability um, that, we, that we can use in our own lives to address coercive control? Okay, so obviously I'm a big believer in prevention. I believe that um, a lot of these things like coercive control, domestic violence and whatnot that cause harm, there's a lot of work we can do as a society before perpetrators or potential perpetrators reach the point of perpetrating. And I think it part of that is moving funds that go towards the police and the legal system into preventative measures, like teaching emotional maturity to everybody, um, but in particular young men, um, I think more community consultation is needed to understand what it is that communities want from these restorative practices, um, that these perpetrators are people's sons, brothers, cousins, fathers, uncles, and that their families aren't always going to want them on the outskirts of society. Their families are going to want them as part of community and we need to find new and imaginative ways in order to um, protect the victim and honour what it is that they have been through and what it is they want, but to also find a way to have healthy healing that's not based in punishment and revenge, but is actually based in seeking healthier, more productive and lasting impacts in people's lives. Um, as an abolitionist, I would like to see prisons become obsolete Obviously, the question that we get asked all the time is, well, what about murderers? What about rapists? Now, yes, people will still murder. That, that is something that will happen. But do we need these big, ugly buildings with bars and barbed wire and forcing inmates into working for a dollar or two dollars a day um, which is in essence slave labour, um, 
surely we can have institutions that promote recovery, which promote healthier living, which promote better mental well-being, which promote treating people with humanity. I think the system is so dehumanising that we forget that the people within the system are actually people. And like Angela Davies says, that prisons don't disappear social problems, they disappear people. We're talking about people here. Um, and these people have humanity and we need to recognise the humanity in everybody. Mm. We're talking with Sinweb about coercive control. I think your point about imagination really gets to the heart of what prison abolition means. And to quote you on Twitter uh, when you talked about, you know, the way that it's done, uh, the way that uh, that criminalisation operates is harm disguised as help and this idea of imagination is we need to think outside of that because it's not working. I would maybe like to ask one more question if we have time. You're obviously very vocal on Twitter about this and we have a lot of other abolitionists that are doing very important work to try and make their voices heard despite this campaign that is building momentum. What would you like to see from listeners, you know, for people listening who are like, this is an incredibly important issue that they support the abolitionist perspective, what would you like to see from them um, on social media or in in other kinds of ways to try and raise awareness around this position on coercive control? I would just like people to remain open-minded, that people like myself um, and others haven't come to this space because we're just these liberationists that don't want to see anybody facing any consequences for their bad behaviour. Obviously, we want there to be consequences for bad behaviour, but we want those consequences to look different. So it's a matter of just asking people, please just stay open-minded. We're not saying that you deserve to be coercively controlled. We're just saying, let's think about what these laws actually mean to everybody, not just for the select few that the people pushing for them are looking to protect. Because reality is, they're looking to protect white women and I'm not saying white women don't deserve protecting. Of course they do. But is protecting them worth the harm that, that law, those laws are going to bring to other communities? And we need to start looking at who is going to be harmed by these laws and how can we protect them from further harm. Um, That's really what I'd like people to start thinking about is that we don't just arrive at abolition because we're anti-establishment. It's it's deep. There's a lot of critical thought that has gone into this and a lot of lived experience that has helped to sway my stance on this. So listening to formerly incarcerated people, um, listening to other victims from different demographics, so women that are 
living with disability that have experienced this, that the context for their abuse is different to mine. And um, I think it's important to listen to all the stories. Yeah, absolutely. That's defi- that definitely seems like a good place to end it. So for people listening, we can reflect on that and make our voices heard on the abolitionist side to counter some of these ideas within carceral feminism. Thank you so much for your time this morning, Sin. I can't imagine it would have been easy to share your story um, and, and your relationship, but it was certainly extremely important. So thank you very much for, for sharing your thoughts on this with us this morning. Thanks for having me. You're listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR. We are almost out of time. Hi, Man's here from the Japarong Embassy. On October the 26th, after two and a half years of defending sacred women's country, the embassy, family, friends and supporters were forcibly removed from country by Victoria Police. The Andrews State Government, alongside Major Roads Projects Victoria, have begun their violent attack to desecrate the sovereign lands of the Japarong to make way for the duplication of the Western Highway between Buangal and Ararat. There are many old growth trees. If anything in that segment brought up things for you, you can call 1800RESPECT, 1800-737732 or wire on 1300-134-130. That is us for today. Stay tuned. For Giselle Hanna on Accent to Women, very important discussion with Crystal McKinnon and Mariki Onis. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's radical independent bookseller and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. Or check them out at nibs.org.au to find more information about upcoming discussions and events.